The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 3, The Guillotine, Book 1, September. Chapter 5, A Trilogy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 1, Chapter 5, A Trilogy. As all delineation in these ages, were it never so epic, speaking itself and not singing itself, must either found on belief and provable fact, or have no foundation at all, nor except as floating cobweb any existence at all, the reader will perhaps prefer to take a glance with the very eyes of eyewitnesses, and see in that way for himself how it was. Brave Journiac, innocent Abbe Sicard, Judicious advocate Maiton, these, greatly compressing themselves, shall speak each an instant. Journiac's agony of thirty-eight hours went through above a hundred editions, though intrinsically a poor work. Some portion of it may here go through above the hundred and first for want of a better. Towards seven o'clock, Sunday night, at the Abbey, for Journiac goes by dates, we saw two men enter, their hands bloody and armed with sabres. A turnkey with a torch lighted them. He pointed to the bed of the unfortunate Swiss, reading. Reading spoke with a dying voice. One of them paused, but the other cried, Allons, donc! lifted the unfortunate man, carried him out on his back to the street. He was massacred there. We all looked at one another in silence. We clasped each other's hands. Motionless, with fixed eyes, we gazed on the pavement of our prison, on which lay the moonlight, chequered with the triple stanchions of our windows. Three in the morning. They were breaking in one of the prison doors. We at first thought they were coming to kill us in our room, but heard by voices on the staircase that it was a room where some prisoners had barricaded themselves. They were all butchered there, as we shortly gathered. Ten o'clock. The Abbé L'Enfant and the Abbé de Chape de Rassignac appeared in the pulpit of the chapel, which was our prison. They had entered by a door from the stairs. They said to us that our end was at hand, that we must compose ourselves and receive their last blessing. An electric movement, not to be defined, threw us all on our knees, and we received it. These two white-haired old men, blessing us from their place above, death hovering over our heads, on all hands environing us, the moment is never to be forgotten. Half an hour after, they were both massacred, and we heard their cries. Thus Journiac in his agony in the Abbey. Now let the good Maiton speak, what he, over in La Force in the same hours, is suffering and witnessing. This resurrection by him is greatly the best, the least theatrical of these pamphlets, and stands testing by documents. Towards seven o'clock on Sunday night, prisoners were called frequently and they did not reappear. Each of us reasoned in his own way on this singularity, but our ideas became calm as we persuaded ourselves that the memorial I had drawn up for the National Assembly was producing effect. At one in the morning, the grate which led to our quarter opened anew. Four men in uniform, each with a drawn sabre and blazing torch, came up to our corridor, preceded by a turnkey, and entered an apartment close to ours to investigate a box there, which we heard them break up. 
This done, they stepped into the gallery and questioned the man Cuisa to know where Lamotte, Nicholas's widower, was. Lamotte, they said, had some months ago, under pretext of a treasure he knew of, swindled a sum of three hundred livres from one of them, inviting him to dinner for that purpose. The wretched Cuisa, now in their hands, who indeed lost his life this night, answered trembling that he remembered the fact well, but could not tell what was become of Lamotte. Determined to find Lamotte and confront him with Cuisa, they rummaged, along with this latter, through various other apartments, but without effect, for we heard them say, Come search among the corpses, then, for nom de Dieu, we must find where he is. At this time I heard Louis Badi, the Abbe Badi's name, called. He was brought out and directly massacred, as I learned. He had been accused, along with his concubine, five or six years before, of having murdered and cut in pieces his own brother. Auditor of the Chambre des Comptes of Montpellier, but had by his subtlety, his dexterity, nay, his eloquence, outwitted the judges and escaped. One may fancy what terror these words, come search among the corpses, then, had thrown me into. I saw nothing for it now but resigning myself to die. I wrote my last will, concluding it by a petition and adjuration that the paper should be sent to its address. Scarcely had I quitted the pen when there came two other men in uniform, one of them whose arm and sleeve up to the very shoulder as well as the sabre were covered with blood, said he was as weary as a hodman that had been beating plaster. Baudin de la Chenay was called. Sixty years of virtues could not save him. They said, A la bay! He passed the fatal outer gate, gave a cry of terror at sight of the heaped corpses, covered his eyes with his hands, and died of innumerable wounds. At every new opening of the grate I thought I should hear my own name called and see Rossignol enter. I flung off my nightgown and cap. I put on a coarse unwashed shirt, a worn frock without waistcoat, an old round hat, these things I had sent for some days ago, in the fear of what might happen. The rooms of this corridor had been all emptied but ours. We were four together whom they seemed to have forgotten. We addressed our prayers in common to the Eternal to be delivered from this peril. Baptiste, the turnkey, came up by himself to see us. I took him by the hands, I conjured him to save us, promised him a hundred louis if he would conduct me home. A noise coming from the grates made him hastily withdraw. It was the noise of some dozen or fifteen men armed to the teeth, as we, lying flat to escape being seen, could see from our windows. Upstairs, said they, let not one remain. I took out my penknife. I considered where I should strike myself but reflected that the blade was too short, and also on religion. Finally, however, between seven and eight o'clock in the morning, enter four men with bludgeons and sabres, to one of whom Gerard, my comrade, whispered earnestly apart. During their colloquy I searched everywhere for shoes that I might lay off the advocate pumps, pantoufle du palais, I had on, but could find none. Constant called Le Sauvage, Gérard, and a third whose name escapes me, they let clear off. As for me, four sabres were crossed over my breast, and they led me down. I was brought to their bar, to the personage with the scarf, who sat as judge there. He was a lame man of tall, lank stature. He recognised me on the streets, and spoke to me seven months after. 
I have been assured that he was son of a retired attorney and named Shapi. Crossing the court called De Nuris, I saw Manuel haranguing in tricolour scarf. The trial, as we see, ends in acquittal and resurrection. Paul Sicard, from the violon of the Abbe, shall say but a few words, true-looking, though tremulous. Towards three in the morning the killers bethink them of this little violon and knock from the court. I tapped gently, trembling lest the murderers might hear, on the opposite door where the section committee was sitting. They answered gruffly that they had no key. There were three of us in this violon. My companions thought they perceived a kind of loft overhead, but it was very high. Only one of us could reach it by mounting on the shoulders of both the others. One of them said to me that my life was usefuller than theirs. I resisted. They insisted. No denial. I fling myself on the neck of these two deliverers. Never was seen more touching. I mount on the shoulders of the first, then on those of the second, finally on the loft, and address to my two comrades the expression of a soul overwhelmed with natural emotions. The two generous companions, we rejoice to find, did not perish. But it is time that Juniac de saint Maillard should speak his last words and end this singular trilogy. The night had become day, and the day has again become night. Juniac, worn down with uttermost agitation, has fallen asleep and had a cheering dream. He has also contrived to make acquaintance with one of the volunteer bailiffs, and spoken in native Provençal with him. On Tuesday, about one in the morning, his agony is reaching its crisis. By the glare of two torches I now described the terrible tribunal where lay my life or my death. The president, in grey coats with a sabre at his side, stood leaning with his hands against a table on which were papers, an inkstand, tobacco pipes and bottles. Some ten persons were around, seated or standing, two of whom had jackets and aprons. Others were sleeping, stretched out on benches. Two men in bloody shirts guarded the door of the place. An old turnkey had his hand on the lock. In front of the president three men held a prisoner who might be about sixty. Or seventy, he was old Marshal Maillet of the Tuileries on August the 10th. They stationed me in a corner. My guards crossed their sabres on my breast. I looked on all sides for my Provençal. Two national guards, one of them drunk, presented some appeal from the section of Croix Rouge in favour of the prisoner. The man in grey answered, They are useless, these appeals for traitors. Then the prisoner exclaimed, It is frightful, your judgment is a murder. The president answered, My hands are washed of it, take Monsieur Maillet away. They drove him into the street, where, through the opening of the door, I saw him massacred. The president sat down to write, registering, I suppose, the name of this one whom they had finished. Then I heard him say, Another, a un autre. Behold me, then, hailed before this swift and bloody judgment bar, where the best protection was to have no protection, and all resources of ingenuity became null if they were not founded on truth. Two of my guards held me each by a hand, the third by the collar of my coat. Your name, your profession, said the president. The smallest lie ruins you, added one of the judges. My name is Juniac, St. Maillard. I have served as an officer twenty years, and I appear at your tribunal with the assurance of an innocent man who therefore will not lie. 
We shall see that, said the President. Do you know why you are arrested? Yes, Monsieur le President, I am accused of editing the journal de la Cour de la Ville, but I hope to prove the falsity. But no, Jurniac's proof of the falsity, and defence generally, though of excellent result as a defence, is not interesting to read. It is long-winded. There is a loose theatricality in the reporting of it which does not amount to unveracity, yet which tends that way. We shall suppose him successful, beyond hope, in proving and disproving, and skip largely to the catastrophe, almost at two steps. But after all, said one of the judges, there is no smoke without kindling. Tell us why they accuse you of that. I was about to do so, Jurniac does so, with more and more success. Nay, continued I, they accuse me even of recruiting for the emigrants. At these words there arose a general murmur. Oh, monsieur, monsieur, I exclaimed, raising my voice, it is my turn to speak. I beg, monsieur le president, to have the kindness to maintain it for me. I never needed it more. True enough, true enough, said almost all the judges with a laugh. Silence. While they were examining the testimonials I had produced, a new prisoner was brought in and placed before the president. It was one priest more, they said, whom they had ferreted out of the chapel. After very few questions, à la force, he flung his breviary on the table, was hurled forth and massacred. I reappeared before the tribunal. You tell us always, cried one of the judges with a tone of impatience, that you are not this, that you are not that. What are you then? I was an open royalist. There arose a general murmur which was miraculously appeased by another of the men who had seemed to take an interest in me. We are not here to judge opinion, said he, but to judge the results of them. Could Rousseau and Voltaire, both in one pleading for me, have said better? Yes, monsieur, cried I. Always till the 10th of August I was an open royalist. Ever since the 10th of August that cause has been finished. I am a Frenchman, true to my country. I was always a man of honour. My soldiers never distrusted me. Nay, two days before that business of Nancy, when their suspicion of their officers was at its height, they chose me for commander to lead them to Luneville to get back the prisoners of the regiment Mestre de Camp and seize General Monseigneur. Which fact there is, most luckily, an individual present who by a certain token can confirm. The president, this cross-questioning being over, took off his hat and said, I see nothing to suspect in this man. I am for granting him his liberty. Is that your vote? To which all the judges answered, Oui, oui, it is just. And there arose vivats within doors and without, escort of three amid shoutings and embracings. Thus Juniac escaped from jury trial and the jaws of death. Maiton and Sicard did, either by trial and no bill found, Lank President Shapey finding absolutely nothing, or else by evasion and new favour of Moton, the brave watchmaker, likewise escape, and were embraced and wept over, weeping in return as they well might. Thus they three, in wondrous trilogy or triple soliloquy, uttering simultaneously through the dread night watches their night thoughts, grown audible to us. They three are become audible. But the other thousand and eighty-nine, of whom two hundred and two were priests, who also had night thoughts, remain inaudible, choked forever in black death.
heard only of President Shapey and the man in grey. End of Book One, Chapter Five.